EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by the EPP Group. How can the EU prevent Belarus from weaponizing migrants for its own benefit? Riho Terras MEP explains in their latest podcast. Tune in. Yes, Belarus is instrumentalizing the ridiculous policy of the European Union. But that doesn't mean that we need to victimize further the refugees and the migrants. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And the voice you just heard was Agnès Calamar. She's the Global Secretary General of Amnesty International. You'll hear her views later in the podcast on the EU's latest plans in response to the arrival of refugees and migrants on the eastern border with Belarus. Also later, you'll hear from Political Europe's new editor-in-chief, Jamil Anderlini. He'll bring us his insights into a country he knows extremely well, China. We'll talk about how it's changed under President Xi Jinping, how it deals with Europe, and about some possible coming flashpoints between China and the West. And we also have an invitation for you. Yes, you. That's coming up right after we tackle another issue in the headlines this week. Europe's response to the new coronavirus variant, Omicron. Uh, Matt is out this week, but it's a warm welcome to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. And to Sarah Wheaton, our chief policy correspondent and also recent host of this podcast. Hi, Sarah. Good to be back. Nice to have you back. And uh, we have you here again uh, this week, partly because you wrote a story recently for us and for our newspaper uh, with the cheerful headline, Get Ready for an Endless Coronavirus Winter. You are, of course, free to say, you know, you don't write the headlines. But I think it it proved to be remarkably prescient. And this is even before uh, we knew about the Omicron variant, which has uh, consumed so much attention over the past week. So I wonder if you can maybe sum up what you were um, thinking about as you wrote that big piece and, and what lay ahead in the coming months, even before we heard about this variant. Well, I think the premise of the article is that, and I'm not speaking from a journalist standpoint here or any sort of science basis, but just like we were promised things. We were promised normal things. We were promised that if we got our vaccines, that you know, they'd work pretty well. We were told they wouldn't be perfect. We were told that some people might still, you know, get the coronavirus. And of course, we knew that not everybody was getting vaccinated. But there was this expectation that, okay, things would be manageable. This would be like the flu. You can pretty much live your life. And so we started living our lives. And it was pretty great, I got to say. And then, especially in places that didn't have absolutely stellar vaccination rates, their hospitals started filling up again. And that included with people who had been vaccinated, because even if the vaccines only have a small percentage of breakthrough cases, if you have enough cases, it's still going to be bad. And furthermore, we're even seeing places like Ireland and like Portugal that have really, really high vaccination rates saying, hey, this is starting to get a little bit hairy. So that article kind of looked at at what was happening. And the reality was that this Delta variant is so infectious that it's forcing us to rethink rethink our plans. And that's hitting just as our vaccines are waning in their efficacy and just as the weather is getting cold. And so we want to be inside and just as we want to travel to see our families. 
Mm. And then along comes Omicron. And how has that changed the picture and also changed the way that policymakers are, are reacting and thinking about this, do you think? So it's probably changed the picture more in terms of the public perception than in terms of the actual reality. So we're worrying about this variant, but the reality is actually it's still the Delta variant that is causing all the problems in this part of the world. And I've seen some public health experts and politicians actually sort of use this to their advantage. So Ireland just had their first case reported today. We're speaking on Wednesday. They just found their first case of the Omicron variant. And I just saw a press release from their health ministry saying like, hey, you know, this doesn't change the picture. Let's remind you that we're hoping to cut down contacts substantially over the next two weeks so that we can have a normal Christmas. So make sure that you get vaccinated, make sure that you wear a mask, make sure that you wash your hands, do all these things. So I think the smart politicians are using the fear that this new variant has caused to get people to do what they actually probably should have done for the Delta variant. Yeah, that's it. And I guess that that is the question, whereas, you know, Sarah, you were kind of saying that, and it's true that our industry does uh, tend sometimes towards the, the gloomy scenario. And there was something about this particular variant that I think did spark widespread alarm and panic, even when we knew very little about it. But I guess my question is, isn't that a good thing? Didn't we not panic enough through some of these previous waves? I mean, we've heard this repeatedly, like the better option is to kind of go early and go hard. And so in a sense, isn't isn't that what they're doing here, Sarah? Isn't that the right thing to be doing? You can have that argument about things like lockdowns, things like mask wearing. Um, that argument is a bit less compelling when it comes to travel bans, because for one thing, as we're seeing, it's already here. By the time you see it, probably the cat's already out of the bag. And can I go back to sort of what you were saying about about the vaccine, which is, I, I know that a lot of people have that sentiment. They feel like they were sold a lie in a way. But I also feel, and maybe you can correct me on this, I also feel like in the general public conversation about it, two things have been kind of lost in, tra in translation. One, the fact that all the vaccines that we take, including the ones that are compulsory, like in France, there's a raft of 11 vaccines that you have to take as a child in order to be able to go to school. These require herd immunity higher than 90% of the population, which is not sort of a level that we have right now in Europe. That's the first thing. And second of all, Maybe the vaccine is a misnomer for this one because the previous vaccines that we've all grown up with kind of prevent you from getting the disease in question. Whereas from the beginning, this shot that we've been getting for coronavirus, the scientists never said it was going to prevent us from getting it, but rather protect us from the most severe symptoms. And maybe that hasn't really sunk into people's minds enough. I think there's been genuine uncertainty about how well the vaccine would do at preventing transmission. So there was definitely some hope that even if you had breakthrough cases, that you wouldn't be able to pass it on to others. And even up until really a few weeks ago, I've seen this debate be quite live. Now we are actually seeing through it playing out in the real world, especially in places like Portugal, um, like Israel, that are highly vaccinated, that indeed um, vaccinated people, even with a mild illness, you can still pass it on. And that's creating a challenge. But it is worth noting that 
even in this new wave where we're seeing much, much higher cases, like Germany, for example, is seeing more cases than they've seen throughout the entire pandemic, we're still seeing much lower mortality rates. And that is due to the vaccines. The question is, what's the right balance as far as how much we can be social and also have the health system operate at a manageable level? Right. And it does feel like, you know, as the summer ended and people just went back indoors, they really went back to kind of business as usual. And I would say it almost, I don't know, it's a bit like, um, it feels a bit to me like like trying to stay on a diet, right? You can do it for a while, but ultimately you end up eating the stuff that you like. And it feels like that, uh, I'm speaking from personal experience, um, but uh, also it just feels like that's what people went back to. And also establishments went back to. If you go into the cafes here in Brussels, there was no social distancing. Maybe they asked for your coronavirus app, you know, to check that you'd been vaccinated. Maybe they didn't. It was all a bit haphazard. And, and as you say, Sarah, perhaps this gets us kind of back to the discipline that's, that's required, especially especially during the winter months when we're all inside more. And I guess the other question then is how big a difference are the boosters going to make? And I will say again, uh, in praise of the Brussels authorities, I have an appointment for next week for a booster. They seem to have done pretty well, at least uh, getting things going and rolling things out. I know some people have had them already. Do you think that's going to be enough, Sarah? Or do you think we are moving to more, um, you know, mandatory vaccination, which we are seeing, you know, will come in in Austria? The incoming German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, seems to be in favour is that the way things are heading in Europe, do you think? Well, there there's sort of two different questions. So I'll start with the booster question. There's a lot of optimism about the boosters. The European Medicines Agency just had a, a press conference last week where their head of vaccines said what we're seeing actually is that your antibody levels go up much higher even than when you were fresh off your second dose. And that is giving him some optimism that maybe – it's a three-dose vaccine, um, but then other people are like, well, maybe it's going to be like the flu vaccine where you need to get it every season. The question of, man- of vaccine mandates is a huge one and really will vary by culture. Just to add to that, on the, what's happening in France, politically, Emmanuel Macron can't actually impose a vaccine mandate, especially ahead of his sort of re-election bid. But every single thing the government is doing is, in effect, making it almost impossible to have a social life if you're not vaccinated. Now we're down to, uh, you need to have gotten your booster shot eight months after your second shot, otherwise you're health pass is going to be deactivated. And in that case, you need a test every 24 hours in order to be allowed into bars, restaurants, on trains, etc., etc. Okay, uh, we'll leave it there. Remarkably civilized uh, discussion. I'm sure that has nothing to do with uh, this week's absentee. Uh, but Sarah, Reem, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll just add, since we were talking a lot about Christmas, happy Hanukkah. Now, before we move on to our next guest, we'd like to invite you to an upcoming event. We, the EU Confidential Crew, will be hosting another virtual holiday drinks this year on Monday, December the 13th at 7pm Brussels time. We'll gather on Zoom to do a live taping of our podcast panel and to answer any questions you might have about EU politics or pretty much anything else. So if you'd like to join us for our virtual get-together, just send us an email. The email address is podcast at politico.eu and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, will send you a Zoom link to join the conversation. 
We very much enjoyed meeting so many of you last year and we're excited to see some familiar faces and hopefully welcome some new ones too. So don't be shy, uh, just drop us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. Now, we thought that it's about time you met the boss. Our new editor-in-chief here at Political Europe is Jamil Anderlini. He started in his new role in October and we had a chat earlier this week about a subject he knows better than most, China, and its relationship with Europe. Jamil has spent much of his career thus far in Asia. I moved to China in January 2000, um, lived there for uh, nearly a year teaching English in Manchuria, working on a children's television show, doing various things. Is there any YouTube footage of this? Uh, no, definitely not. Um, <laughs> and if there was... Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be in my interest to broadcast exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> So, so, um, then he went to journalism school in his home country of New Zealand. And my first job as a working journalist, I was the editor-in-chief of uh, a magazine in Shanghai, a lifestyle magazine, a free, like a timeout style thing. Then I worked as the editor-in-chief of something called China Economic Review. And then I was hired by the South China Morning Post, which is the big sort of old English language Hong Kong newspaper, as their business correspondent in Beijing. Did that for a couple of years and then I was hired by the Financial Times as a reporter in their Beijing bureau. Worked for the Financial Times for 15 years. Uh, and then he got a call earlier this year, which ultimately led to him moving to Europe to head up our newsroom of more than 100 journalists. Now I've got a lot to learn about EU institutions and the, and the Brussels bubble and the way that... Uh, but I'm learning. I'm, I'm a relatively fast learner, or I have been in the past, and so I, I'm optimistic I'll, I'll be able to at least get the basics under under control soon. Yeah, I reckon if you can get your head around communist China, you can probably manage the EU institutions. Well, I think the EU institutions more co more complicated. I have to <laughs> yeah. say, the Communist more Party of China. Sometimes. Yeah, well, the Communist Party of China is pretty clear who's in charge. So, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, here it's a little less clear who's in charge. But that's what's fascinating for me, actually, genuinely. Moving to Brussels from Hong Kong, where I've been the last six years. Hong Kong is very sad these days. Um, sort of democracy has been snuffed out in, in any form there in the last couple of years, whereas Brussels is about the most democratic place you could probably find on earth. And that's very exciting. Just given all that expertise that you have built up on China, I'm sure that's of interest to, to our listeners. I'm sure it's been of interest to a lot of the people as you go around, uh, you know, doing your introductory calls on EU officials. Uh, it's such a, a big topic. I mean, globally at the moment, the rise of China, uh, particularly, if you like, this iteration of China under, under President Xi. And I wanted to ask you, uh, there's a lot of talk in this town, there has been for years, you know, we need a proper China strategy. And I wondered, does... China have a Europe strategy? And if so, what is it? China has a very, very clear Europe strategy, and it's to divide and rule. Um, effectively, what you see is the Chinese bureaucracy, the Communist Party itself is very sophisticated in its analysis of other countries and other regions. And they're highly effective, I, I would say, in achieving their goals when it comes to Europe in particular, because it's so easy for them to play off the southern states versus the northern states, the Germans against the, you know, everyone else, the French against the English, you know, whatever. I mean, Chinese tactics, if you like, of international diplomacy are very, very sophisticated. And I think Europe is 
so obsessed. One of my colleagues described it in Europe as the narcissism of small differences. Uh, you have so much inward focus. So I think if you look at what does China want, it wants effectively everywhere in the world to make the world safe for autocracy, Chinese autocracy. So it wants countries not to mention the three T's, Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen. It wants no one to mention Xinjiang, of course, um, no one to interfere in their internal affairs while interfering in other people's affairs as much as they like. You know, Communist Party wants to build the Belt and Road Initiative. So it wants to sell lots of things to Europe and it wants to buy technology and it wants to acquire technology from Europe and it wants international institutions to not make a fuss about things that China doesn't want it to make a fuss about. So it's highly effective at co-opting uh, or threatening or using various tools to get countries to buy into the Communist Party's agenda for China. And I think you can see that just in even the EU's policy. What is it? Uh, we're a systemic rival, but we're also uh, economic competitor, but we're also partners on all these things. Like, what the hell sort of strategy is that? I mean, like, can how, you be, how can you be all three of those can things? You? No. Well, I don't think you can. How mm. could you? I mean, it's sort of ludicrous. It's a very Europe, EU kind of <laughs> compromise, uh, compromise yeah. fudge position. And you understand, it's very easy to understand how you get to that position, but it's completely untenable in the in the medium term and especially when you see bring in the transatlantic relationship and you look at how the united states has completely changed its approach to china there is no more i mean the the idea of engagement is dead completely china is a rival china is a competitor and a systemic rival and it is a threat that's how the u.s sees it and europe is nowhere near that and that's because you have different interests amongst the 27 member states very different interests how does China view the EU as an institution? Generally, uh, I would say that the Communist Party does not see the EU as a serious institution and it actively works to undermine it. So, for example, the 17, 16 plus one whole thing where you take some EU member states and you take a whole bunch of others that are not EU states and you put them together in a, in a special meeting arrangement with China itself, that is actively meant to and has always meant to undermine the European Union as an institution. And how different is this China under President Xi to the China that you first encountered? And how much does that change how... How much has that changed? How much has his ascent changed how China views the world, interacts with the world, including with Europe? Yeah, so I would be very – I'm trying to be – it's hard always to do this, but I'm trying to differentiate between China and the Chinese people from the Communist Party and uh, the Communist Party under Xi Jinping in particular. So when I first arrived in January 2000, I would say for the first decade or so of my time in China that – it, it was quite clearly opening up, engaging more with the world, becoming more liberal. It was still an autocracy for sure. It was a one-party state. And I would say the second decade I lived in China from 2010, 12 till now was uh, this sort of mirror, polar opposite in many ways, tightening repression at home and increasing, especially in the last few years, uh, aggression, assertiveness overseas abroad. Mm. Um, I think all of us who have uh, spent a lot of time in a particular part of the world, you, you get to know it very well. And, and part of what comes with that can be a kind of frustration at how other people see it. So what do you think are the biggest misconceptions? I don't know if you've encountered them when you're sort of doing the rounds here or more broadly when you read others 
writing about China without the kind of knowledge that you have? What do people get wrong about China? Oh, so many things. <laughs> Too many things. Um, what is often, again, going back to how successful Chinese diplomacy can be and uh, you know the Communist Party's propaganda can be, is you'll often find people who are uh, with a great interest in China repeating talking points of the Communist Party propaganda. For example, a great one is China has never been expansionist. It's just totally, totally wrong. China has actually uh, fought border wars since World War II with the majority of its neighbors. China has invaded Vietnam in 1979. So it's pretty recent, right? But if you go back over Chinese history, unless you accept that everything on the planet, certainly up to the gates of Vienna, belonged to China by its natural right, and it's just taking it back rather than expanding and invading anything, then you have to just laugh at this idea that China has never been expansionist. Uh, the idea that the Communist Party is somehow so far-sighted, you hear this over and over and again, because people hear five-year plan, 10-year plan, 100-year plan, and they go, oh, without the annoying elections, without that annoying democracy election thing, authoritarian systems like China's, oh, you know, very efficient authoritarian systems, they can really plan for the long term. And it's sort of true in that they have these plans. But if you, as I have done, unfortunately, for so many years, actually read them and actually read what, and then look at what actually happens, what you realize is they're not even really for reference. And because there is no democratic legitimacy for a system like this, the Communist Party can be extremely reactive, actually is mostly extremely reactive. They worry about revolution all the time. So they will do something very, very, very short-sighted that creates all these unintended consequences that make a whole lot of set of new problems that they then have to react to. And so the long-term plans get thrown out the window almost the moment that they're, that they're written down. Mm. Are there any kind of key kind of acid tests coming down the road for, for Europe and the US in terms of the relationship with China? When you kind of look onto the horizon, what do you see there? Oh, in the, in the very near future. So first is probably the big next one is the Winter Olympics because – I expect there'll be a lot of attention to human rights violations and there'll be, you know, snowboarder dudes and dudettes protesting for the Tibetans and the Uyghurs at the Olympics. I expect, fully expect to see that. There'll be boycotts of some, many politicians, maybe even some of the sponsors. Uh, towards the end of 2022, we don't have an exact date, but probably November 2022, there will be a big Communist Party Congress when Xi Jinping will break the unwritten rules, the precedent which uh, has been set since really the 80s, 90s of stepping down after 10 years in office, he will give himself at least five more years, maybe much longer in power in China. And so that will be a big moment. I think he'll do that pretty much unopposed, but you might see some backroom maneuvering and you know dark talk of attempted coups and things like this. Probably unlikely that anything will actually come of it, but there'll definitely be, he'll be hyper paranoid about anything that could derail his sort of apotheosis, uh, emperor for life as, uh, as he's planning. And then after that, you, you know, you're sort of looking at Taiwan, whatever, whatever happens with Taiwan. There are some in the Chinese system who say they need to invade sooner rather than later because the world is hardening towards this regime in China and the U S is 
retooling its military and the militaries of its of its allies to better defend Taiwan. And so China sees a strategic opportunity in the short term. I think you should watch relations between India and China. They fought a sort of mini border war last year, which was, you know, really quite a shock to everybody. So that's one to watch is that relationship. Mm. Are there any bright spots here? This all sounds quite gloomy. I mean, we've obviously just had the COP26 and there's the question of how much China is willing to cooperate in terms of climate change. We're right in the middle of a pandemic where China has obviously played a a very, very uh, central role. Are there areas where the West and China can kind of genuinely and constructively cooperate? No, I mean, I think trade is the the most obvious one. Still, most things are made in China. And uh, I think that the West should certainly shouldn't close the door to cooperation. It should be more clear-eyed about what this system is and what it intends and and where it's heading, uh, which I think is generally quite concerning. On the COP, I would say that that's another misconception in the West is, oh, if we, and, and almost a little racist in the way that, oh, if we, the enlightened West, don't work with these benighted uh people in China, they're never going to understand that uh, global warming is a big thing and that they have a big role to play. I mean, in China, actually, I had to breathe that air in Beijing for years and years, and so did the leaders of China. So they've actually done more in some ways than most you know, many other countries in trying to address some of, the, some of the underlying issues. Now, because for so many years they didn't address it, uh, they have a problem of over-reliance on coal, and they are by, you know, China is by far the biggest emitter of carbon in the world. But whether the Europeans lead them to the light or the Americans engage, you know, John Kerry goes and meets with them a lot, that's irrelevant as to whether they are going to actually deal with this or not. So the idea that, oh, we should be nice to the Communist Party of China, otherwise they might mess up the planet, I think is just completely ludicrous. China will deal with climate change based on its own interests and its own decision of whether to do this or not, and it will not do it because it's told to by the West. In fact, it will bridle against anything that makes it look like it's doing this because the West wants it to. Look, I think the the thing I hope for the most is that once Xi Jinping gets his emperor for life and uh, he he gets to, you know, be secure in his power, maybe he loosens up and lightens up a bit and realizes that he doesn't need to be so authoritarian at home and so aggressive abroad. Jamil, thanks very much. Thank you. Right after this short message, the Global Secretary-General of Amnesty International, Agnes Calamar, shares her views on the EU's latest measures to deal with migration on its borders. Stay with us. A message from the EPP Group. What we are witnessing at the EU-Belarus border is an attack, and civilians, even women and children, are the weapons. Every day, there are new reports of illegal migrants trying to force their way into EU member countries. According to Riho Teres, Estonian MEP, Estonia's defence chief from 2011 to 2018, this is a clear case of Belarus capitalising, hybridising and weaponising migrants for its own benefit. Some people try to describe what is happening at the EU-Belarus border as a migration crisis. It is not. It is an attack against a sovereign border of NATO and an EU member state. Check the EU Confidential Newsletter for the link to the podcast. 
Now, as we all know, migration has been a particularly difficult topic for the European Union in recent years. And in recent months, it's risen back up the agenda as Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko has been sending people, often from the Middle East or other volatile regions, to the EU's border, falsely promising them safe passage into the European Union. This week, the European Commission unveiled a new proposal which essentially grants three countries bordering Belarus, Poland, Lithuania and Latvia, exceptional powers to limit the rights of migrants arriving at those borders. The measures include allowing those countries to hold migrants in processing centres for up to four months and also giving them several more weeks to register asylum applications. On the same day the proposals were announced, our own Hans von der Burchert sat down with the Global Secretary-General of Amnesty International, Agnès Calamar. They met at Amnesty's offices in Brussels, and Hans began by asking Calamar for her reaction to the plans. I think the first reaction I, I have is around the fact that uh, we are not talking about a major crisis here. We're talking about a few thousand refugees, migrants that have arrived at the borders of those three countries. Uh, it's really far from constituting a crisis. And yet, in the name of that pressure at the border, uh, it appears as if um, the European Union institutions are prepared to get rid of, to eliminate, to weaken years, decades of uh, human rights-centered uh, procedures, policies, and to do so in violation of international refugee law. Maybe um, the proposals can be seen as part of, or are indeed part of a, of a treaty adopted by the EU that allows for emergency measures. But in view of international law, whether it's human rights law or refugee laws, those procedures violate the uh, obligations of the states vis-à-vis -vis those uh, individuals. According to what I have been told, the proposal includes, uh, would include detention of uh, refugees, migrants, uh, for up to 16 weeks. It would constitute an arbitrary detention under international law because those individuals have committed no crimes that would mandate their detention in that way without their cases being heard, without them being processed according to the basic procedures that need to be followed. The counter-argument of uh, those countries or probably also the EU institutions is that uh, migrants are here not fleeing directly a war zone into the European Union and asking for asylum, but actually are used as a hybrid weapon, as it is always said uh, by the Belarusian uh, autocrat uh, Lukashenko. And uh, they're flying by airplanes there as supposed tourists and then end up at the EU border. So uh, it's described as an emergency yeah, situation. I mean, yeah, you know, yes, Belarus is instrumentalizing the ridiculous policy of the European Union uh, regarding migration, you know, in order to win some points against uh, the European Union. But that doesn't mean that we need to victimize further the refugees and the migrants. I mean, those poor people have already been led wrongly by Belarus and the various uh, mafias that are involved in, in that process. 
it is not a reason for the European Union and the member state to further victimize them in, in that way. So that's, um, you know, I, I, I don't buy at all this argument. Secondly, there are other ways of dealing with the crisis. The first and important one is to talk to the airlines to ensure that they stop providing those particular trips, which I understand, in fact, has been done. And indeed, the number of migrants has almost stopped that are now arriving to the border. So why are we moving in that direction when we have found ways of handling the crisis at the point of departure, which is what should have been done in the first place? To me, what you are describing to me, if it indeed it is going to take place, is just the European Union and member states using that crisis, which is a small crisis, as a justification for demolishing, for destroying the rule of law as it relates to migrants and refugees. That's just what it is. They, too, are instrumentalizing it for their own purposes. And you've, I'm sure you've presented these arguments or this criticism to the European Commission, to the Commissioner in charge directly. Um, are you satisfied with any of their arguments or justifications? Look, the position of uh, the European Union is that they are doing, they are acting within the law of the European Union because of that treaty that I have mentioned, which allows for emergency measures to be taken. The position as well, I think, of the Commissioner is that at heart the issue cannot be addressed if you know steps are not taken at the point of departure um, you know it, i cannot talk for the commissioners but based on my conversation with her i will say that she appeared to be prepared and to have taken steps to ensure that um, Other measures could be put in place, not only those related to these emergency measures. But that being said, those emergency measures are unacceptable from a human rights standpoint, from the standpoint of Amnesty International. Right. So that's the point. They're saying it's emergency measures, but uh, you don't agree that they are necessary or um, acceptable. They are neither necessary nor proportionate, and they violate international law. Right. Uh, well, the European Commission is still saying that asylum seekers can request asylum. It just might take a bit longer. But if we have such an emergency measure, if we have migrants being used as a weapon, shouldn't the EU be allowed to de-incentivize migrants that are coming via this way as a hybrid weapon that end up I, at the border, uh, end up in terrible situations? No, there? no, no, no. I mean, of course, we need as an international community to look at the issue of migration internationally, which, by the way, I thought we had done that a couple of years ago when the Global Compact on Safe Migration was adopted, something that nobody now talks about. But that Global Compact gave all of the um, options for handling the situations that you are talking about. And it includes working in the countries of origin. It includes working with populations. It includes raising their awareness of the risk. Of course, we absolutely need to do that. Uh, but we need to do that before they leave. We need to do that in the context of their departure. We do not, what did you say? In well, basically motivate them not to come. But that doesn't work. I have studied international migrations for quite a while now, including coming from um, 
Syria, Iraq, and Africa. These methods simply do not work. And the notion that we can use risk and death as a deterrent for migration is absolutely ridiculous. Time and time again, people have shown that they either do not believe that there are such risk because there is such mistrust, distrust, or they are prepared to face the risk because what they are facing at home is even worse. So that just does not work. It has never worked. We need to work in the countries of origin. We need to create opportunities in the countries of origin. There are far more sophisticated, complex interventions. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. As mentioned earlier, if you want to meet the Confidential crew, at least virtually, for drinks on Monday, December the 13th at 7pm, just send us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening so you get us in your feed on your device of choice every week. Thanks this week to Lucas Kotkamp and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.